2: The earliest civilizations on earth developed between the years of 4000 and 3000 BC when the rise of agriculture and trade allowed people to have surplus food and economic stability. Many people no longer had to practice farming which allowed for a diverse array of professions and interests to flourish in a relatively confined geographic area. Uh, The use of fire, the advent of the wheel, learning to domesticate animals, all these, plus a really cool thing called writing to record their progress, all became milestones as we climbed the civilization tree. And later, uh, you could say in the colonial rush of the mid-16th century, the Western Europeans brought even newer technologies and ideas and plants and animals that were new to the Americas that would transform people's lives, Uh, some, as we all know, not necessarily for the better, Uh, things such as guns or tools and weapons, uh, but also Christianity and Roman law and sugarcane and horses and cattle all became hallmarks of what's called a civilized society. But what about our sales profession? Can we say that sales has tracked at the same arc as the rest of civilization's trademarks? After all, one can probably argue that our craft of sales hasn't really changed much in the past few thousand years. As our market-dominant sales historian Chris Beale is fond of reminding us, sales used to be an interaction among strangers at the crossroads. between to people who would likely never see each other again once the transaction was complete. One may get miles away from the city after interacting with a salesperson, only to realize that the thing that they purchased doesn't do what the salesperson said it would. And what do you do? I mean, there's no Amazon or Yelp reviews to post at this point after such a discouraging interaction, only more fear and suspicion from that sales experience that in turn the next salesperson they ran into um that salesperson needed to overcome all of that trust distrust and that that fear and suspicion to secure their sale but today in the market dominance guys sales labs we believe that sales does indeed have a shot at civilizing the world and how it would do this by forcing trust and sincerity to the forefront of how humans interact and conduct commerce. And they've really never been there, um, argues Chris, as you'll hear. Sure, we've had all sorts of societal mechanism, things like duels, and we spoke in an earlier episode about the Colt 45 Peacemaker as an indispensable tool to keep and hold politeness and honor in check. Because simply, as you remember, if, if you weren't polite to another person, then you'd be challenged to a duel. And if you were in enough duels, the math would eventually work against you and you're eventually going to be dead or out of business. But in the current world, we have the anti-duel. We have the internet where no one can be polite, no business can be impolite for long and expect to still stay in business. But it's the B2B buyer who will actually challenge you to the duels in today's world. The B2B buyer, because of their strong need to not get fired due to the information gap that they want between buyers and sellers, they're motivated to get information, real and true and timely information. And nobody can or should, with all the sales enablement best practices that are out there today, no one should be as educated as any of your salespeople, simply because of the nature of specialization. But if you do insult that sales prospect, or you're insincere, or you're untrustworthy, or you exaggerate, and you give them any reason not to trust you, they are, in essence, going to, quote, kill you. And they have the easiest way in the world of killing you, and it's got a great name too. It's called ghosting. And Chris reminds us that they are not the ones who become the ghost in that description. We become the damn ghost because we're already dead to them. So in this week's episode of the Market Dominance, guys, we learn why we're at the cusp of true importance for the roles of sales in today's society and, and to need to understand that the game has to move on from being a mere primitive game and instead become more of a sincere set of human intentioned actions based on universal principles. And the most universal of these probably is that somebody has to actually be part of the conversation at the point of fear. And that springboard of fear, when you can generate trust out of that fear, then you're gonna win, as long as you don't blow it. So grab your Rosetta Stone, Grab your flint and welcome to this week's episode entitled The Rise and Fall of the Sales Empire.
3: So, as an SDR, if I have an SDR team, my average handling time, my average call time per call should be a minute and a half ish, maybe two minutes. If I have an SDR team that has more than a two minute average, conversation, then I'm getting too deep in discovery. They're going too far down the funnel. And that's exactly. probably why my conversion rates
0: are, uh, are were there. Yeah, so. and your show rates are probably too high. And your show rates are too high, yes. Yeah. You, what you're trying to do is you want to get enough curiosity in order to get some energy coming toward you. You don't, you don't want that energy to be high enough to always get over the hump. And the reason isn't that you don't want it there, is that the process of getting there overspends the trust that you've got. And therefore, yields an unreliable result. That is, you end up cherry-picking and leaving a good part of the market for your competitors. As soon yeah. as you walk away from a situation that, where they should have, for their own good, attended the discovery call, and you don't give them the chance to make that choice themselves, you've done work for your competitor. You have actually introduced into that person's mind some new thinking about a problem. And now when your competitor shows up, they have an advantage. So if you want to work for your competitor, overqualified during cold calls. Overqualified
3: during cold calls, yes.
0: You're you're spending money to work for your competitor at that point. You just don't know when they're going to harvest the result. Whereas if somebody doesn't attend your meeting, they're not going to attend the other guy's meeting either. It's fine. Let it ripen. They will ripen and you'll get 60% of them over three years to attend your discovery calls. And then you own the market. It's not which 60%, but right? this is the other thing that's really funny. 40% will never attend your discovery calls. Great. That's just fine. That includes the ones you're talking to now. So the fact that you're talking to somebody, other than that you should do your best to get them sufficiently curious to commit, the commitment is when they go to their calendar. Commitment is an, is an action. The action is the jump over to actually attending the discovery call. So there's four steps we do in a cold call. The same three of the four steps we do in a follow-up call. So cold call, we do fear, fear to trust, trust to curiosity, curiosity to commitment. Commitment represented as something on your calendar or my calendar. So that's what we're trying to accomplish.
3: Fear to trust, trust to curiosity, curiosity to commitment.
0: Yeah. And that's as far as we want to go in the cold call. The prospect may want to turn that into action, but the setup is bad for action because the trust isn't high enough. We need more trust. They got to qualify themselves further by showing up at the meeting. The horse must approach me. I'm never going to chase the horse. The horse is always bigger than me. The horse can run away. And even when it's back is to me, it can kick me. It's a bad place, right? They got stuff on both ends. (laughs) I don't want any of it. I don't want them to bite me. I don't want them to kick me. I don't want any of that. I want to live to fight another day because, by the way, I'm just like every other big animal. I have to be careful of myself. I have to make yes. sure I stay But. fight. So I want to generate this, this little sequence right on the cold call. On the follow-up call or the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth conversation, I don't have to start anymore with the fear. There's no fear. I actually get to start with whatever trust I have in the bank account from before. Then I amplify that trust slightly by referring to the previous conversation. You're important. I remember when we spoke and what we talked about and what you said. A lot of you in there. Mm -hmm. We includes you. We includes you again. And what you said is just you. I'm kind of a little more trustworthy. When you answered the phone, you were neutral. Mm -hmm. I remind you of the previous conversation, which I don't expect you to remember. But the reminding process tells you that I care about you. Yeah, Because I remembered and a remembrance carrying act. That's why we do memorial services. Even the dead prefer to be remembered. <laughs> and this person's still alive. So then, when we get into discovery, we're in a completely new world because there's enough trust that they came to us. If we're really smart in discovery, we don't actually start spending that trust right off the bat by asking interrogation style questions. We actually don't. First of all, we remind ourselves, what are, what are the three things that this person is going to walk away with, even if it's only one of the three, that will be of value to them for the rest of their life, no matter if we ever do business together? Because that's what I sold them. I sold them a meeting where they're going to walk away with something of value, and it's not going to be a gift card. Somebody called me the other, the other day and said, what do you think, Chris, if we gave out one of my customers, What if we gave out a gift card for attending the discovery meeting? It's like, well, I don't know. Um, Did you marry your wife or do you just like pay her on a regular basis? (laughs) You know, it kind of depends on what kind of relationship you want. But if you're going into business with somebody because you're really going to help them over time, you're probably marrying them. If you want to have a prostitution relationship with somebody start with the gift card, but you better keep it up because if it takes a gift card to do one, it's going to take discounting Mm -hmm. cards to Mm -hmm. do the rest. So I'd be ready. I'd I'd put that in my budget, right? Lots of gift cards going down this right. right, right. But they trusted you enough to show up without a gift card. Well, what if it improved my show rate? You don't want an improved show rate from gift cards. You want that little speed bump in the way. Now they showed up. The best way to open, and we could have a whole section on discovery, The best way to open a discovery call is with the first to remind yourself the most important step in a discovery call is inside yourself. In fact, when I did that run on Sunday morning from here to Reno, the most important thing wasn't making sure my feet were taped up and making sure I had water in my backpack and that I had enough bars to eat on the way, and all that. The most important thing was the gut check, was to look inside myself and ask myself, it, fairly seriously, is this an undertaking which has an unknown amount of effort, pain, and uncertainty, and maybe danger? I'm 64 years old. I don't have a cardiologist. My friend Jim Haggard sent me a note that says, does your cardiologist approve of you cavorting around doing this, right? And I had to answer, my cardiologist, whoever he or she might turn out to be in the future, <laughs> I can't weighed in on this. Yes. Right. So I have to be my own cardiologist, right? So what if I was endangering myself? I'm endangering myself. What am I doing to the future of my kids? What am I doing to Helen, who really kind of thinks it's great to live the rest of our mutual lives together in some long kind of way? So I had to do the gut check. That's what I do before every discovery call. I don't go research this person. I don't research their company. I check inside myself. I put in the sincerity dipstick. I want to know, do I sincerely believe that the odds are good that whoever it is I'm meeting with is going to learn something in the economic realm, in the emotional realm, and in the strategic realm, even just one of those three, sufficient that it'll be worth their 15 minutes even if we never do business together. That's the key. That's the product. So as an SDR, I need to know I'm selling that product and what those three things are. Those are the three features of the product. I don't have to say them. But I have to know them. I have to believe yeah. them. And how often does anybody ever teach their SDRs the three things somebody is most likely to walk away from a discovery meeting with that will benefit from them for the rest of their life and have nothing to do with buying our product?
3: You're talking about the economic and emotional and strategic realm. Yeah, something you might learn, yeah.
0: right? Yeah. Does anybody yeah. even think about teaching their SDRs the importance of believing that the meeting itself that they're selling has value independent of their product or is the meeting a stepping stone on the way to selling them a deal in which case we know who it's for it's not for them it's for us and as soon as we start selling for us not for them we're toast that's a mistake jesus wouldn't have made <laughs> that's right right that's right i mean that's that's an error that's an error of kind that is commonly made And it's made due to the ancient tradition of selling, which is sales was an interaction among strangers at the crossroads. You would never see each other again. So almost all sales in the ancient world were done where two roads came together. And therefore there was enough concentration of traffic that it was worth setting up your stall. And the salesperson always feigned sincerity and haggling became the order of the day. And all it was, was how desperate's your need. You know, what am I willing to part with this for? I know my inventory and my ability to replenish it. You don't know well, how much you're going to need. We're going to exploit the information asymmetry and send you on your way. And you're going to find out how bad the product was. I sold you later, three days camel ride out. Sales as a profession was built at the crossroads. There's no crossroads anymore. We don't say goodbye after the sale. The sale is the beginning. That's to say hello. So sales has exactly the opposite meaning now that it used to, but we, we hold the old traditions. Actually, if you think about Sandler, Sandler was a breakthrough approach that said, and, and remember, it came about from door to door. Right? Yeah. So you might see the person again. It's like, what if we did door to door in a way that allowed us to sell to the same person again? Yeah, that, was actually, yeah. that was the Sandler breakthrough.
3: Yeah, I, I love Sandler. I think from, I think the school of sales, like for, this is a course What you're talking about, and again, the sales theory, this unified field theory of sales is a new generation of how to sell with that. I can't hide from you anymore. I'm on LinkedIn. Right. And if I, even if I go from Cisco to Avaya and I try to call you again, I can pull up, wait a minute, this motherfucker, he tried to screw me at Cisco, <laughs> and now he's over here, and <clears throat> oh, I see, hey, Chris, I see that you're connected with John Mueller over here. Hey, listen, he called me again. Oh, I remember that guy. So there is, like you said, there's no, there's no crossroads uh, any longer where your camel, there's, there's no camel uh, ride that's long enough where it's too far to reach you again. So um, this concept of reputation, even an SDR, I get a cold call from an SDR. I can pull you up on LinkedIn and say, listen, you've been there for a month. Your company's been in business for two years. The ability for me to gain information on your organization is so readily available. What do I have left?
0: Right. Every SDR my- needs a story about how they came to believe. That's a good one. That's a, that's a key. They have to have a story. If you want to cheat, and your your company's been around, keep your SDRs and keep them because they believe in the mission. The most important people in the entire company to believe in the mission of the company are the SDRs. When you look at your investment in employee development, you should be weighting your investment heavily in your SDRs believing in the overall offering and specifically That's sincerity of of overall mission, right? Alignment with the mission as a whole. And then specifically as a skill, very specific, like point by point skill, they need to understand and therefore believe in the potential value of the meeting at its feature level, its benefit level, which is what are the three things that somebody is likely to walk away with if they pay attention to the meeting? Well, and they're all learnings. So oddly enough, there's only one universal product now, which is value through learning. Yeah. That's all there is. That's the first product, the ultimate monkey's paw, right? The yeah. meeting itself yeah. is the ultimate monkey's paw. And, and it's the way to destroy or hurt the value of that meeting is to turn it into a sales meeting, in which case now the, S, the, the poor SDR has nothing to sell. As soon as the purpose of the meeting is to push somebody to a deal, the SDR no longer has anything to sell, sincerely. And that's a broken value chain and broken value chains open up gaps for competitors to walk in. And it's always the same, which is, it doesn't matter if it appears to be working for you. The question is, what if your competitor did it all the way? What if your competitor ran this program precisely? Because a small amount of competitive edge results in market domination.
1: Connect and sell. Welcome to the end of dialing as you know it. Connect & Sell allows your sales reps to talk to more decision makers in 90 minutes than they would in a week or more of conventional dialing. Your reps can finally be 100% focused on selling since all of their CRM data entry and follow-up scheduling is fully automated within Connect & Sell's powerful platform. Your team's effectiveness will skyrocket by using Connect & Sell's teleprompter capability as they'll know exactly what to say during critical conversations. So come on, give your fingers a rest with Connect & Sell. Visit ConnectAndSell.com. You're listening to the Market Dominance Guys with your hosts, Chris Beal of Connect & Sell and Corey Frank of Uncommon Pro.
0: Because the, the basic theory of market domination is, you know, this is the New England Patriots approach to business, right? Why are they such a difficult team to deal with? Because they always play a long game. They play a long game. It's a multi-season long game. And then within the season, it's a long game. And then this game itself is going to be played as a long game. They just play a long game in which small advantages accumulate over the game in order to result in high probabilities of outcomes, especially season-level outcomes and dynasty-level outcomes. Mm. Folks who do that dominate markets. It's pretty simple, really. Accumulate small advantages and build on them as a strategy because every advantage gives you a new place from which you can accumulate more advantage. It's not exactly hard to understand. It's very rare that you're Genghis Khan and you're the only guy with a bunch of people on horses and everybody else. But that doesn't <laughs> happen. Today,
3: that's, that doesn't much anymore. You're right. It doesn't.
0: Yeah. It's hard to be Genghis Khan no. now. So at some point, you know, when we bring all this together and bring it all down to the big why, the big why is market dominance without which we don't have survival. That's what's so interesting. Our alternatives are attenuated and being attenuated more, which is M&A. We just don't get to play that game anymore like we used to. I just talked to somebody, see a company that sells to manufacturers, it's called Strategic Pricing, SPA. And what they sell to manufacturers is fascinating. They sell the benefits of raising your costs. And so if you're facing especially an upcoming potential recession, you can increase your costs in a world where everybody is cost plus and right. you will sell effectively then your margins will go up. Well, the math works in the
3: restaurant business. You see this all the time is that two schools of thought, my business is going down, it's Arizona, it's the summer. What do I do? I have Groupon happy hour specials, try to cut costs, which is the opposite of what you should do. Because my traffic, which is the constant is now down. I have to now have four times the level of traffic to make up versus if I just increased my prices, with the same little folks, I would make it up. You know? Right. And if you increase and,
0: your cost a little bit, so your cost might be, for instance, what are you spending on how the restaurant presents itself the moment you walk in? Right. So say in order to make your restaurant more attractive in Phoenix in the summer, what you do is you put and it's on a street with a lot of other folks and, and say, you're the first one to go all Palm Springs and you put some little mist sprinklers out there, and those things cost you 5,000 bucks to install. Your costs went up, and therefore, your prices can go up. So you're saying the
3: costs go up to make the prices go yes. up? Yes,
0: yes. And it's My very counterintuitive, question. but when you, if the volume flow is gonna be similar, or even down a little bit, a slight increase in cost in a competitive world where everybody's competing with each other, right? Manufacturers are all competing with each other, but, and distributors are the worst. So these guys, first order, they sell to distributors. right? And so that's their first product. But their second product goes to the manufacturers and says, we're going to help your distributors who you, you don't want to have make more money. We're going to help them make more money because then they'll actually pay you. So there's a hidden part of the equation, which is, Really, how much money are you collecting, dear manufacturer? Not how much do you think you're selling, volume-wise, but how much money are you making? So we're going to go, you give us your distributors. We're going to allow them to increase their costs so you can charge them more, by the way. And as a result, their business is going to be more profitable. And mm-hmm. it's like, whoa, you know, it's mind-blowing, but they take you through the numbers and you go, yes. But I asked him, what's so important about this for manufacturers? And he said, it's simple. M&A is getting killed. The manufacturers have got to move into markets now through organic growth because it's getting too expensive to buy companies. And so now they're actually getting investments from private equity firms. The money's flowing the other way. They're the ones being invested in. Now they've got bosses. Oh my God, the bosses are impatient. And meanwhile, their way out the side door, so to speak, which is to buy another company to grow their business, is being outcompeted competed by the private equity guys who don't have the pain of integration and have a huge amount of money because of the concentration. The fact is, the ultra-concentration of wealth in society now has made private equity super strong because at the margin, if I've got a ton of money, how am I going to put it to work? Well, some of it's going to go to work more as risk capital venture, some as less risky private equity, and some over here where everybody else is competing. How do I get an edge? I'm going to choose a hedge fund or a private equity fund. Is going to help me out, right? I'm going to at least get yeah, the right. Yeah. You, you had this This macro things happen in society, which is liquidity of information, power of technology, the ability to close loop on reg, uh, um, regulations of laws, what happens when you have money, you can buy votes. All that stuff has led to this bubbling up of money into the smaller, numerically smaller set of people. Those people have access to the whole market. One of the places they must put their money is where money is made, which is companies doing real work. That's called private equity private equity outcompetes corporates every day of the week because money that doesn't have anything that it's beholden to except its buy-sell value is always more liquid than business, which means I have to buy your company and integrate it in my operations somehow. So I can no longer, as a manufacturer, reliably play the market expansion game and buy the markets that I dominate. So now I must dominate them through organic growth, which means sales is no longer the old sales, not only in the crossroads sense, but in the disposal of inventory sense to keep my machine. Now it has a new role, which is to get me markets so I can survive. I know I'm not surviving so well when the private equity guys get to buy into me. That means I'm not getting enough money from the market. I'm having to take their money. I know I'm not gonna leave this for my kids unless I put a growth engine on it. That's got (laughs) legs, and that's why I built it in the first place. So I'm about to blow my 35, 40 years of legacy work on a change of circumstance. So I must learn to sell. And what, what got me is that the SPA guy said, this is the theme in manufacturing now is organic growth has become a requirement of business. And that's fascinating to me because it means that this unified field theory, like everything, it's got to have a place to apply it. Right. So it's like, Nuclear energy was interesting in terms of scaring the living daylights out of people by dropping a couple of bombs and then freezing the world up for a while with regard to global aggression. But what made it really wild was the fact that you could make electricity and the world needed a lot more electricity because factories run on it. (laughs) 80% of all the electricity in the world is used to turn machines in factories, to turn motors. And nuclear energy is just one heck of a cool way to do it. Now, yeah. it ended up with a reputational issue and all that, but the reason that that time came in the 50s was not that we scared the living daylights everybody, out of everybody and, and managed to use it to institute this Cold War that froze up a bunch of latent military aggressive power that would have gotten unleashed on the world. We would have, I'm sure, would have had World War III by, oh, I don't know, 1962. Because right? Korea was an attempt at it to get it going. And it's like, no, we're all too scared. We can't do that. Sorry. So that was a nice effect. But the real effect was you can manufacture electricity for nothing. And that's an amazing thing. Now, solar is the new nuclear. Because when the cost came down enough, you can manufacture electricity for nothing again. Right? Yeah, it's time right. has come. Solars times solar is now like 32% of Great Britain's total energy supply and was predicted at this point to be like 2%. Right? Why? Because when the time comes, the time comes. Well, the time has come for a sales theory that addresses the problem of directed organic growth. It's a different business problem that you're solving with sales. Directed organic growth must result in market dominance if it's going to increase survival. And so, what do you base that on? What's got to be based on 100% reliables? It's like nuclear energy is 100% reliable. Statistically, whether it's made of uranium-235 or it's plutonium, either one statistically will behave exactly the same as you predict. (laughs) That is, I can't say I know this atom is going to fission, but I can say that I know the rate of fission that's going to be in this collection of atoms if they have neutrons of certain certain velocity Mm going through them. Mm-hmm. I can say that yeah. to two decimal points. I can say how that's going to work. We need a unified theory of sales that tells us statistically what's going to happen so that we can direct that energy beam that we can create with that level of certainty at a market. And oddly enough, the twin pillars of this thing are trust and sincerity. The thing I believe about all this is that sales finally, if, we, if the conditions continue to obtain, Sales has a shot at civilizing the world by forcing trust and sincerity to the front of human interactions. And they've never been there. We had to have all sorts of societal mechanisms, duels. We talked a little about Romeo and Juliet. You know, how did we use to enforce even just politeness? Well, because if you weren't polite to a gentleman, then you'd be challenged to a duel. <laughs> and if you're in enough duels, you're going to be dead. They have that's to right. have right. out of this now, musicals, mm-hmm. just to remind us of what that's like. Well, in the current world, we have the anti-dual. We have the internet.
3: Yeah,
0: Everybody can be impolite. Now, the question is, where do you have to go above politeness all the way to sincerity so you get trust? Only in sales. You can design products without sincerity. You can manufacture products without sincerity. You just mm-hmm. have to be good, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Technically good. You can assess need without sincerity. You can statistically analyze need based on responses on the internet. You can do all this stuff without sincerity, but the B2B buyer, because of their need to not get fired, because the information asymmetry between buyers and sellers that obtains now and will always obtain, no buyer can ever be as educated as any seller. Impossible because of the nature of specialization. The B2B buyer, is the guy who will challenge you to the duel. In the modern society, the guy with the sword is the B2B buyer. And if you insult that person, you're insincere, you have many reason not to trust you, they're gonna gonna kill you. And by the way, they have the easiest way in the world of killing you. It's got a great name, it's called ghosting you. We say ghosting like they become a ghost, they don't become a ghost, you become the damn ghost. (laughs) Because you're already dead to them.
3: That's right. That's
0: that's awesome. You're the ghost, not them. That's the big surround of the unified field theory. Otherwise it's unimportant, but it's actually, we're at the cusp of importance for the role of sales in society. And the game has to go from being a game to being a sincere set of actions based on universal principles that have to also be true. And the most universal of them is somebody is gonna actually be able to start at fear. If you can make trust out of fear, you win, as long as you don't blow it. But you have to do it sincerely. And the rest of this is nothing more than how to make a nuclear reactor. Don't just pile up a bunch of uranium and hope for the best. It doesn't work out. There's only two states it goes in, one is called meltdown and the other is called nothing. Warm, (laughs) Another one of those is you can't make money off those little puppy dogs. But, yes. you know, if you can assemble the nuclear reactor, which you make mm-hmm. up out of the pieces we've been talking, to, talking about, you can actually go and sur- you can survive yeah. in a very, very tough world. So that's yeah. what's it's interesting. And I don't know how we package all of this. It works. But once we get the book together, it's going to be really interesting because I'm practicing now a 22 minute talk that I've now given at dinners and I'm going to do a lot of dinners and breakfast where people generate their own breakthrough script a little lighter, like mm-hmm. here's the basic theory. Now let's do it. Right. Cause at breakfast yeah. time, people are capable of doing that kind of work. At dinner time, yeah. they can do that work. All they can do is listen and have a discussion and then see if they remember anything after all the alcohol. Right. <laughs> but the dinner speech, the idea is that it starts with an assumption that no one will challenge, which is market dominance is required for survival. All the reasons that we got there, they're very light. They're just touched on. Mm -hmm. They're gentle. Like, oh, yeah, because primarily because the old way of doing it, which is M&A, is being impinged upon by private equity. Everybody knows private equity has too much money for comfort if you're a buyer of companies and you're not a private equity firm. They have too much money Mm -hmm. and they have too easy a job because they have to buy it kind of do a couple of little things and sell it, whereas you gotta buy it and integrate it. So the price is higher for you and your costs are higher to get to the same point. And then you still don't have the option they had, which is just to sell it because you kind of ruin it. It's overhead is the problem you're gonna solve when you synergize it out, but when you sell it, you have to sell it with the overhead because it's yeah. got a functioning company, right? So that world's gone, that doesn't take long. That takes like a minute, minute and a half to get into it. And that's like, so what is the implication? And what does it all come down to? And the surprise answer, the first seven seconds of a cold call on the telephone. Yeah. That's the surprise. And people surprise. people get it. And they, go, whoa. they don't know what to do with it, but it's like, whoa. And that's what I want out of this book is I want people going, oh, and then there's a cookbook. You mm-hmm. can actually do this. Yeah, and it's not easy. There's uh,
3: Terrence Malick. I don't feel like him as a director and a writer, right? I think he's just genius. You get a movie a few years ago with Brad Pitt and this dynamic with his father and he did Thin Red Line. He's got a movie coming out in December about a Austrian saint who was conscientious objector in the Nazi army and in the Catholic tradition, right, became, he's about to become a saint and he's beatified. And, but he has this habit in these movies to take the eye off of the, uh, the camera off of the character and then move, to something in nature and study it. And in this movie with Brad Pitt, it went from this dynamic with this father and this son and changed to like 10 minutes of the Big Bang Theory and the universe and its creation. Oh, wow. And for some folks, it's like way too esoteric, right? And you just kind of had to study. It's like, why? And it's going to the origin of, like you were saying, the origin of sales is that, two strangers come against each other at this crossroads and one wants something that the other has. And in order for survival, they both have to come to some sense of fairness and and then go on their merry way. And because they're a stranger, they have to either feign the sincerity or it has to be genuine. And I like what you're saying that really what we're talking about here is also this origin story of trust. And it's uh, you think about all the things in technology the tech stack. I can have 50 things in my tech and my marketing stack. I can have $40 per square foot real estate overlooking Lake Travis in Austin or overlooking the Golden Gate Bridge. I can have Zig Ziglar, the reincarnation of himself, come and be my Monday morning motivating spiritual guide. But what it comes down to is seven seconds with you and your voice and your tone. It's so human. It's so counterintuitive at that point that the very definition of your ability to dominate your market in 2019 comes down to the very same thing that it came down to in 2019
0: BC. Exactly. In the village, but not at the crossroads. That's what's so interesting. At the crossroads, we fake it. In the village, we can't because there's nowhere to go. We're all in the village now. Uh, There's nowhere to go. We're all in there. We're stuck in the village. So the question now becomes, how do you civilize a village with 7 billion inhabitants? What is the repeatable requirement, the repeatable benefit, the repeatable principle to be applied that could civilize a world where that is essentially a village with 7 billion inhabitants? And I believe the answer, oddly enough, it's not B2C. B2C sales doesn't do it. It's too transactional. It's too cold. The irony is when I buy products for myself, I'm not risking very much. You have to have risk on the table to have tension. And the fundamental risk that will remain in society for a long time is the risk to the individual decision-maker buyer in business to business. And that risk ain't going anywhere. And it sets up the entire thing. The whole thing is set up from that. And from there, you can actually, the rest of it, you can reason your way to with no experience about anything except for knowing one thing for this particular solution which is human beings are afraid of human beings they can't see that they don't know that's pretty obvious but people tend not to think of that as important but it turns out to be what's important
1: today's show is also brought to you by uncommonpro.com selling a big idea to a skeptical customer or investor is one of the hardest jobs in business So when it's really time to go big, you need an Uncommon methodology to convince others that your ideas will truly change their world. Through a modern and innovative sales and scripting tool set, we offer a guiding hand to ambitious leaders in their quest to reach market dominance. It's time to get Uncommon with UncommonPro.com. Never miss an episode.